to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 17. We haven't been here for a couple of weeks now. Took two Wednesdays off, so that means it's been three weeks since uh, we were last here. So you may have uh, lost the train of thought in the last uh, three weeks. We'll try to uh, pick it up again here in a moment. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's blessing as we study His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessing we have to assemble. We call upon Your faithfulness, Father, to watch over us to protect us, to hedge us about, to bless our study, to bless the, uh, the audio recording, Father. We had issues on Sunday, but I think they're resolved now, so thank you for, uh, for all that you provide. We give you the praise and glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 17. And so, as we head down to verse 7, really, We're going to be looking at uh, speech, but before we get there, we talked about old age, we talked about mocking. Uh, Let's just read through the first seven verses and uh, try to get back into a Proverbs mindset. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Boy, that's painful. Painful but necessary. Thank God that He does it. Thank God that He tests us the way that He does. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to destructive tongue. And and some of that lying issue will come back again here in verses uh, 7 and 8. Verse 5, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And you might remember as we looked at this, let me get my slideshow up and running here, as we looked at this, there were bigger issues in view beyond really the surface reading of mocking the poor. And so mocking the poor is is wrong, yes, it's a sin, of course. And uh, mocking a a human being uh, is, is, is not what God would please God and fall short of the glory of God, and so it misses the mark, and by definition it's a sin. But far bigger than uh, teasing a human being or mocking a human being or, or verbally abusing them in such a way that they feel low, they feel bad about themselves, worse than that is the actual mocking of the creator of the universe, the, the prideful attitude that is in open defiance against the glory of God. And so it's taunting the maker. That's the bigger issue. It's the bigger sin. And, uh, and, and keep that in, in mind because I think uh, there's, there's bigger issues involved when we uh, deal with the things here in verse 7 this morning. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Why are we rejoicing at something that God's not rejoicing in? He's, he's not thrilled to apply His judgment upon uh, somebody that needs God's judgment. He's not uh, just up there taking great delight in uh, those things. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather that the wicked should repent. That's what he's looking forward to. So if God is slow to anger, if God is long-suffering, if God is quick to forgive, 
that means that he's not taking delight in the judgment. He's not taking delight in the calamity. And so if God doesn't delight in it, we have no business delighting in it. All right, from there to verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men and the glory of sons is in their fathers. We talked about the dynamic across generations. And uh, this was our last class. Let me pull that slide up. It would be there. The dynamic across three generations highlights the progression from fatherhood to sonship to fatherhood. What happens when a son becomes a father? And now you've got three generations and uh, spotlighted here with the old men, the, the fathers, the sons that are actually now the, the grandsons of those old men. And so this dynamic is a, a beautiful thing. And it's only portrayed in the realm of humanity. It's not portrayed in um, the animal realm. It's not portrayed in the angelic realm where there's no procreation whatsoever. Uh, did I shock you when I said it's not portrayed in the animal realm? Uh, you say, well, Pastor Bob, you're crazy. Animals procreate. Of course, animal- yes, they do. But animals don't have a grandparent-grandson relationship with their grandchildren the way that that humans do, all right? And so, in fact, they may not even recognize their grandchildren. And, and in fact, uh, they may, uh, depending on, on how the, how the uh, pack is, is run, uh, they may attack their grandchildren. They may, uh, they may mate with their grandchildren. They may, there's other things that the animal realm is not the human realm, is the point I'm trying to make. And so there is instinctive animal procreation that happens. They, they, they mate they breed, they produce offspring, uh, but that's instinctive, all right? And when they're raising the offspring, the animal parents are not training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're not communicating biblical truth. They're not, they're not training in the spiritual dimension, all right? And they're not, um, they don't have the opportunity to do that over multiple generations whereby a, a father can tell his son, when I was a son, this is how my father related to me, and now it's carrying forward to the next generation, the lessons that are being learned in, uh, in that way. That can only be done in humanity. And as humanity does that, humanity is actually portraying the plan of God, whereby God the Father sends His Son and whereby God the Son comes to accomplish the will of the Father. And whereby accomplishing the will of the Father in the new heavens and the new earth, the Son Himself becomes a Father. That's what the, the thousand generations are about in the dispensation of the fullness of time. In Revelation 21, they will be My people, I will be their, uh, they will be My children, I will be their God, is what it says. And that's the God the Son speaking. That's Jesus Christ speaking. The Alpha and the Omega will have children. And uh, some people don't like this. You know, when I mention it, it, it causes vibrations and things. But it's a portrayal of that. It's portrayed for us in Genesis, when you, in Genesis 4, where um, it's only with the third generation can then men corporately begin to call upon the Lord. The early chapters of Genesis portray the generations and their corporate blessing to call upon the Lord. And this is a dynamic that happens when you have multiple generations together in a spiritual relationship of, of worshiping God. And so Adam uh, begets Seth, and uh, Seth begets Enosh. 
as it says, uh, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, or Enosh. Then men, or humanity, uh, began to call upon the name of the Lord, began to collectively call upon the name of the Lord. We have three generations together that can, that can worship. Three generations that can worship together in this way. The God of Abraham became the God of Abraham and Isaac, became the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these verses are, are pretty clear on this regard, and it's, it's really inescapable when you're reading sequentially through the book of Genesis. We uh, were running low on time and didn't uh, actually turn to these verses. Genesis 26, 24, when uh, Isaac is really in a lot of conflict over uh, different wells with the Philistines. He keeps digging wells and then getting evicted and digging more wells and getting evicted and, and um, a lot of quarreling that's happening over these wells. So in verse 23, he went from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. And so here he's speaking as the God of Abraham. He's a personal God. The God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. All right? Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And this is the confirming of the Abrahamic covenant to now Isaac. But it's the God of Abraham that confirms that covenant to Isaac. A couple chapters later, we get to the next generation, Genesis 28 13. And. Uh, Curiously enough, Jacob departed from Beersheba. He's going to be fleeing from the will of God under a lie that he and his mother cooked up. All right. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there and because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place, put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. So here's the dual title now, where the God is not, not just the God of Abraham anymore, He's now the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's significant because He is contractually obligated that this unconditional covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant is now technically the Abraham and uh, the Abrahamic Isaac covenant because it's been made and reconfirmed now to Abraham and to Isaac. And he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. To your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And so the same language is now reconfirmed, re-reconfirmed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. So we're excluding Ishmael, we're excluding Esau. Alright, this is... uh, this is important. And uh, the, uh, Jacob awakes from his sleep in verse 16 and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. Well, he should have known it. And he shouldn't have been running out of the geographic will of God in his carnality. And so uh, he gives the name of the place Bethel as the house of God. Um, over to chapter 32. He's on his way back into town. And um, 
he's still got all kinds of fear because his brother Esau, last time he was in town, Esau wanted him dead and vowed to kill him. And now he's coming back into town and he's afraid. But we read in Genesis 32.9, Jacob said, O God, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. So on his way back into town, he's pleading in prayer. And he's, who's he calling upon? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He should, in faith, be calling upon him as Yahweh, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he doesn't have the faith to do that yet, even though it's been confirmed to him back in chapter 28. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and the faithfulness you have shown me. And, and so he doesn't have the faith to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even though the covenant was reconfirmed to him. doesn't have the faith to pray for that. Not until Exodus 3 then do we see this title displayed in its fullness in uh, when God is calling Moses and uh, the children of Israel need to be brought out of Egypt. Exodus 3 and uh, the burning bush chapter, he calls out Moses, Moses in verse 4. Don't come near here. This, uh, remove your sandals from your feet. This is holy ground. Verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There's the, t- there's the title. Now following Jacob, of course, who gets renamed to Israel, this threefold Trinitarian title can be shortened to just simply the God of Israel, but that's understood to be an equivalent expression to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There's no further delineation beyond Jacob. Because Jacob has 12 sons, all 12 tribes are co-equally within the nation of Israel. He can't say the God of Jacob, the God of Judah, you know, because then that would be to the exclusion of the other tribes beyond, outside of Judah. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that includes all 12 tribes of, uh, of Israel. So that's verse uh, 6, verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Anyway, this is a generational pattern. And there's going to be a thousand generations of Jewish people calling upon the, the name of the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you want to think of those as generations one, two, and three, and then add 997 after that, um, that's, that's one way to model it, all right? Um, I tend to think that it's going to be a thousand, the, the numbers will start over in the uh, new earth, and uh, we'll have a thousand generations on the new earth. All right. God the Father is a demonstrator for God the Son. The ultimate outworking of this is the fatherhood of Jesus Christ. Where we have a father, we have a son who becomes a father, and dispensationally this is the plan of God. This takes us from the the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. This takes us from the Garden of Eden where in innocence Adam and Eve were commanded to procreate God desired for sinless humanity to be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth and subdue it. But sinless humanity never did that. 
Sinless humanity was not fruitful, did not multiply, did not fill the earth and subdue it, because sinless humanity became sinful humanity very quickly. Uh, so we don't know how quickly, but it was before procreation. It was before, um, before the birth of Cain that they were sinners. And so when they finally did procreate, what was the problem? Was they were now sinners. And uh, everything procreates after its kind. Sinners procreate sinners. That's just how it works. And so um, that's why God has to overcome that. God has to resolve that. Because when He commanded sinless humanity to be fruitful and multiply, that's the will of God. He wants sinless humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And it's going to happen in the fullness of time. It's going to happen for a thousand generations on the new earth. And so all of this is connected and tied in then to why God the Son is spoken of as a father. And why the title in Isaiah 9-6 is not just wonderful counselor, mighty God, it's eternal father, prince of peace. And um, it's it's a a blessing that we have there. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. He didn't fulfill this in first advent. He went to the cross in first advent. He didn't take the the crown in first advent. That waits second advent for when he takes the throne. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So that's what we have to look forward to. Jesus doesn't have any children yet, which makes sense because he's not married yet. He's still uh, espoused to the bride. The bride uh, is waiting for uh, the rapture and then, uh, then will be married. Then Jesus can, uh, can have his children. How about Isaiah 53.10? So, I mean, color me old-fashioned, but I believe uh, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the <laughs> the baby in the baby carriage, all right? I mean, it's a, it's a little ditty, it's a little rhyme, but it's biblical that, um, that uh, marriage ought to precede the, uh, ought to precede the, uh, the birth of the child, ought to precede the pregnancy, ought to precede, precede the, the marriage bed activity. All right, Isaiah 53.10, we have, of course, penal substitutionary atonement all throughout this chapter, and the liberals, they don't like it, can uh, repent and, and learn better, but um, he, he paid the price for our sins. That's why he died on the cross. He was pierced through for our transgressions, in verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, and it was punishment and it was substitutionary. They weren't his iniquities, they were our iniquities, and they were laid on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is penal substitutionary atonement. And in the process of this, he voluntarily did it. He closed his mouth and he agreed and he went forward. So verse 10, the Lord was pleased. This is propitiation, satisfaction. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would render himself a guilt offering. The the father is sacrificing his son, but the son is sacrificing himself in agreement with the will of the father. They are in complete agreement, father and son in complete agreement with this. Picture Abraham and Isaac walking up that mountain together in complete agreement. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. And what offspring is that? His offspring. He, the son, will see his offspring. You know, and this is part of the miracle too. When Abraham killed Isaac, Isaac wasn't married yet. Isaac didn't have any children yet. Isaac was just a, a single young man. And God had promised many nations. God had promised a multitude of people and gives him a son and then says, kill him. And so here's the faith of Abraham being tested. How am I going to have grandchildren if I kill my son before he has children? How am I going to have the multiple generations? How can we fill the earth? if I kill my son before he's married, before he has children. And so you would think the same thing with Jesus now. How is he going to have children? Who will be the offspring of God the Son? Who will be the offspring of Jesus Christ if he dies in his first act? See, so we have the, the, the typology of this, I think, is a beautiful thing. All right, so if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong. Notice there's a reward that comes after the obedience If he submits in obedience to die, then after that the Father will provide these abundant rewards. That's just the promise of resurrection right here. He will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Penal substitutionary atonement. Because he died, he lives again, and the Father gives him everything, everything. He's the heir of all things. We have the, uh, the truth of it here. All right. So this dynamic across generations. And this is, this is really a lot to unfold, really, from uh, a single verse that says, grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. But realize that not only is this just a, like a pithy, a uh, statement that's a truism for the human experience uh, is so much more than that. It's actually a representation of the plan of God in, in some of the deepest ways imaginable. All right, well, let's move on to verse 7 then and talk about fitting speech. What is fitting? What is appropriate? Speech must be fitting, and two illustrations are especially unbefitting. Speech must be fitting. And two illustrations are especially unbefitting. And so we read in verse 7, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool. And I'm going to retranslate excellent as excessive. Excessive speech, abundant speech. Uh, you, you know somebody that talks a lot, that, that can never shut up, that just keeps talking and talking for, for minutes and hours after really everything they had to say was really said in the first 30 seconds anyway, but they just don't stop. I mean, come on. And um, there's, there's people like that, and um, <laughs> I, I may or may not know anybody, and I wouldn't admit it if I did. But we all do, all right? We all do. And I'm speaking in general now, not looking at anybody in the room, because there's nobody here. All right. But there are people that just don't ever stop, 
And they just go and they go and they go. And I think it's an idolatry form. I think they're just in love with their voice. I think it's, it's whatever it is, they just they love hearing themselves talk. And, and they think that the more they talk, the more they're impressing people with how much they know or how wise they are or whatever. Or just, can you stop already? I mean, I, I get it. All right, so there's a lot you can do with this verse. Excessive speech. Excessive speech. It's not fitting for anybody, but most of all, the fool. I mean, anybody under the sun is going to get in trouble with excessive speech. But first in line in that list is the fool. I mean, he should be the last person in town to just ramble and ramble and ramble. So excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less, here's a ratio and a proportion that's really infinitely much less, are lying lips to a prince. Lying lips to the noble. And I'm going to retranslate here. The word prince is uh, is a term of nobility. So we've got the fool and we've got nobility being contrasted. We've got uh, verbal sins or verbal um, transgressions that are spoken of here. Uh, With the excessive speech, you can't help but sin at some point. And with the, uh, the lying, of course, an untruthful statement is, uh, is, in most cases, is carnal as well. So, speech must be fitting, and two illustrations are especially unbefitting. We have two characters in society being portrayed here, the fool versus the noble. And the word for fool is nabal. So we have the nabal versus the noble. And uh, in contrasting the Nabal with the, uh, the noble, I think there's, uh, uh, not only is there a, a sound-alike thing there that'll help us remember it, but it's also, I think, a commentary on our culture and one that, uh, that we may even get a squeeze in a little bit of a sociology class in here this morning that, that's going to come grounded in, uh, in the Word of God. Because by talking about the, the, the Nabal, by talking about the, uh, shall we call them the socially outcast, the social reject, that's who the Nabal is. This is, this is someone that really um, has no place in public, has no business um, in, in, in polite company, in, uh, in civil society. And, and we, would, we would call them, I mean, it's worse than underclass, it's... it's uh, it's 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 the undesirable of a of a location, okay, city, county, whatever. Uh, the 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 fool that is not uh, is the worthless that's actually to the detriment of your culture, and then of course the nobility, the the noble among your culture, and are they intrinsically better? Or are some people better than others? That's not what we're saying, but there are some people for whom the societal value is is better. Can I say that without getting in trouble? All right. There, there, there is a segment of our population that contributes to the culture in very beneficial ways, in very positive ways, because they support um, uh, the, 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 the things of the culture. They support the, the community. They're the benefactors in the in the in the arts. They're the contributors to charities. They're the they uh, they 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 increase the uh, well-being of 
of a of a neighborhood, of a of a city, of a of a state, or what have you, whatever their whatever their outreach is. Okay, and in whatever the case may be, they've made donations to parks or libraries or hospitals or or uh, or so forth. Okay, and so. What I'm trying to say, those people aren't better people intrinsically. Here's what we, it's not a prejudice thing, and it's not a we're not talking about inherent worth. Okay? Because everyone's in the image of God. Everyone is is uh is a sinner uh, saved by grace or, or paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? People are intrinsically co-equal as humanity. Please nod and tell me this is making sense. You, you get what I'm saying here? God is not a respecter of persons. Yeah, God is not a respecter of persons. So when we talk about personal self-worth, in terms of personal self-worth, every human being in the image of God is precious in the sight of God. That, that, that the soul, all souls belong to the Father. All souls, and we're talking about the all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay? I want to be on record saying that, and now the MP3 re- recording is, is got me there. All right. Now, that's on one side of a discussion for personal self-worth. Now we come to another discussion. Unrelated. There's another discussion, and it's not personal self-worth, but it's communal, um, communal uh, beneficial production, shall we say. I'm going to find a better way to say this. Because this is where you have certain people that are more beneficial to their community. They're more beneficial to their community. And, and there's other people that are detrimental to their community. The community suffers because the Nabal is there. And the more Nabals that are there, Nabalim, the more fools that you have in your community, the, the community pays that price. Because they're not contributing to the community. They're not benefiting the community. Okay? As opposed to the, uh, the noble contributions that are made by the uh, by the noble, all right, by the benefactors, by those that that bless their uh, their culture. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, and so, and it's not based upon what they are intrinsically. It's based upon what they do, the things the things they achieve, you know, and uh, and and so the legacy they. They leave not just while they're alive, but even after they're gone, when they, they leave a will or they leave a, big, a bequest and, and they, uh, they make uh, a, a free gift donation of, of things. So they are contributing to their community. And so um, is, a, is, a, is a town enriched by having more churches? Is a town, in, I would say yes, you know, by having Bible teaching pastors that enriches a community. Uh, is a town enriched by having uh, parks, by having museums, by having uh, music venues? I mean, what is it that improves the the uh, the community? Say, um, 
Or, you know, what is it that, do we have enough of those? Is, is, it, is it a detriment? Do we, do we need, uh, you know, think about uh, horrible things that, you know, uh, wow. Okay? Does that, does that enrich a community? All right. That's what this verse addresses. So it's a contrast between the Nabal and the, uh, and the noble. It's a contrast between the Nabal and the Nadib. We'll learn about Nadib. So we have Nabal and Nadib. I should have put that up on the screen too. And uh, so this is what we have. And then we have, so we're contrasting two contributors to the community, one that contributes positively and one that contributes negatively to his culture. And then we're also talking about their speech. Their speech. And in both cases, the speech is negative, the excessive speech and the deceptive speech. The lying, the lying lips. And so um, this too is a recognition that even the, even the pillars of society, the most esteemed and praised, you know, the, the, uh, the pillars of society that everyone just oohs and awes over, that they're thankful uh, that we have them, uh, even they are sinners that could lie. They're sinners that could, uh, that could uh, uh, commit sins, that can let a person down. That's why you don't want to trust in nobility. You don't have cursed as the man that trusts in man. And we'll see those verses too. So we, we hold them to a higher standard. We expect that they're going to be examples for our, our population. But we don't idolize them or we don't, uh, we, we're not shocked when it turns out that they actually are sinners. All right, let's um, look at some of these verses. And of course, speech must be fitting. It's proper, it's appropriate. And uh, we've got a couple, of, we can find a dozen or more passages, but I'll just limit it to these two. Psalm nineteen fourteen. <coughs> Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so not just speaking, but the thinking behind the speaking has to be fitting, proper, appropriate, acceptable. And so there's speech that, that is on target and there's speech that misses the mark. There's speech that is, uh, that is uh, valid. Remember, we're going to give an account for every careless word. And this comes to the very issue of who God is as a communicator, who God is as the God of truth. So speech must be fitting. And there's some speech that's clearly not. And when we think about, again, humans versus animals, and, and I, you know, okay, cats meow, I get that. Dogs bark, I get that. And there can be a variety in their communication because there can be angry barks, there can be happy barks, there can be hungry barks, there can be painful barks. Um, you know, so there, there can be varieties in their communication. But again, they're not going to fellowship in the Word of God and they're not going to celebrate the plan of God and they're not going to praise the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness into light. Okay? And when we think about what we can do in our verbal communication how in the variety of how we speak, in the variety of how we preach, in the variety of how we sing, 
You think of all the different styles of music and all the different ways to sing and the, the ways that, that, that we can praise God in our verbal capacity or the ways that we can vilify. I mean, we can, there's some of the most vile, God-hating, uh, horrible things that get uttered in Hollywood or get uttered in rap music or, or get uttered in, in, in rock and roll music like I used to listen to with Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and, and Megadeth. And I mean, man. And uh, it's some of the most vile things. And it's coming out of the same mouth. The same mouth that blesses can curse. The same mouth that praises God can say horrible, hurtful things. That's what this passage addresses. Speech must be proper. He did not bless humanity. I think, I think verbal capacity is part of the image of God. What you and I have to communicate, the blessings we have to communicate in language, that we can speak in the indicative mood, we can speak in the imperative mood, we can speak in the subjunctive mood, we can speak in the optative mood, we can speak of, we can speak of things that we hope and dream, not just, we can speak conceptually. We can paint a verbal picture in, in a way that's, that's very creative. All right. That's the image of God at work. And so to defile that, to dishonor that is just, it's abhorrent. Colossians 4, 6 in the New Testament. This is going to be a scripture memory verse in our coming. I've made the order, by the way. It should be shipping and we should have them hopefully in the next uh, couple weeks. We're going to do a Colossians scripture memory project over the summer. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should. This is the language of ought to, of, uh, of uh, obligation, of fitting. What's fitting, proper, appropriate. So you will know how you should respond to each person. Speech must be fitting. And so here we have two illustrations of what is especially unbefitting. First of all, excessive speech is inappropriate for everyone. Excessive speech is inappropriate for everyone. And it's kind of a difficult thing to preach if you're a preacher and your life is speaking But you have to realize there's a difference between illustrating and rambling. And uh, going on and on and on and on and on, droning beyond the uh, point of edification is um, not good. You know, it came up earlier, Proverbs 10.19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable but he who restrains his lips is wise. You know, if you're digging a hole, quit digging. That's uh, another way to put it, okay? Um, you know, sometimes you've just said too much. And you're not going to fix it by saying more. Usually, uh, all right, you've already said too much, just stop there. 
Okay? Perhaps it'll be another occasion. Or not. Just for the, for the time being, let it go. Because where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. And this is a, it's a hard lesson to learn. And uh, I think for all of us. Let's go back to Job. First book of the Bible. The earliest book ever written. I think it predates Genesis. I believe Moses received this uh, while he was in Midian before the Exodus. He learned it from his father-in-law. I believe he put it into the Hebrew language at that time. And uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this was his uh, prep work, getting him ready to, uh, to author the Pentateuch. And, uh, and then he went back to Egypt and he delivered the children of Israel. In any event, um, and this is not an accident. Chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 18, and in all four of these chapters is verse 2 of all these chapters. So in Job 8, 2, 11, 2, 15, 2, 18, 2. It's not a typo, it's not an accident. I double-checked that. I said, oh, that looks weird. And, uh, but you'll, you'll see why here in a moment. Because it's at the beginning of every chapter, and every chapter begins with somebody taking their turn to speak. Okay? So verse 1 of chapter 8 is, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered. All right? And uh, this is the, the uh, uh, rebuke that comes here after Job's speech of, uh, of uh, verses 5 and, and 6, and, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Or just 6 and 7, I guess. All right, yeah. Job's uh, answer is 6 and 7, and now here's Bildad's rebuttal. So Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? Like, are you done yet? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. <laughs> okay? Come on, Job. All right, enough already. And the idea of wind is it's just, it comes and it goes and it's gone. And uh, we, we have similar idioms today. You say somebody's just full of hot air, you know, because he just, he just keeps going. He just keeps talking. Shut up already. And this is, uh, this is uh, Bildad's uh, rebuke related to that, all right? How about um, chapter 11? Then Zophar, the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? <laughs> I mean, is that the standard? Can you get a not guilty verdict from the judge if you just talk his ear off? And, and uh, it's not, you know, excessive words isn't proving your point any. Shall your boast silence men? Shall you scoff and then rebuke? And um, anyway, he's, uh, he's not impressed with Job's arguments. Chapter 15 and verse 2. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should, we, should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? And um, yeah, your own mouth condemns you down in verse 6. In... Uh, Anyway, it's not multiplied words. Excessive speech is inappropriate. 
Finally, Job 18.2, Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, then we can talk. Man, Job's used so many words now, he's out of words. He's got to make up a few more new ones. just to, and So he's hunting for more words. How else can I say this? Just stop already, you've said enough. You don't need to say any more. We also have um, Ecclesiastes. Solomon in his human viewpoint records a couple of instances here. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Here we go. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Uh, For God is in heaven and you are on earth Therefore, let your words be few. <laughs> okay? You know, the worst kind of a wordy guy is a wordy guy that's arguing with God. Down to verse 6, Do not your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And so the longer you're talking, the worse it's getting. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Remember when there's excessive words, sin becomes unavoidable. Down to 6.11, for there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage of man? All right. Anyway, so this is all the human viewpoint approach that Solomon has there. So, can we agree that excessive speech is a problem for anybody? <laughs> Everybody? And that's, that's, the, that's what the grammar of, of uh, that's what the, the actual syntax here of, of uh, Proverbs 17.7 is dealing with. It's saying excessive speech for everybody, but most especially for the fool. And then how much more lying lips to the noble. Perhaps most of all to the nabal. N-A-B-A-L. Strong's number is 5036. And, and curiously, of all the words for fool, this is not the normal word in the book of Proverbs. Okay? We've been doing Proverbs now for, I don't know, how many, 200 and whatever classes. We've studied the fool in almost every chapter, right? Uh, we've had the fool get wisdom, grow up, you know, don't be the fool. And, and usually there's, there's two dominant words for fool, and, and this isn't one of them. Okay, uh, this is not the kind of foolishness whereby you know if you had the wisdom from the word of God, uh, the naive will grow. He will no longer be the fool. He'll no longer be simple. He'll uh, he'll have understanding given from God. There's um, you can you can remedy ignorance, right? The word of God, the wisdom of God, can remedy the spiritual foolishness. But this Nabal, though, this is something else. This is, like I say, this is the, the outcast. This is the socially reprobate. That's a good term. The socially reprobate. The one that is a detriment to his community. So it's not the typical fool vocabulary in Proverbs. And I thought, here we go, I made that clickable. I did make that clickable. And so here's your Hebrew terms for fool. And uh, the Nabal is this little guy right here. Okay? And so you can tell by how small that little wedge is on the circle that it's not used as much. 
Okay? It's not used very much. We've got 99 fools in the Old Testament, and, and this, this, is, this is just 18. This is a small little, it was 10, I'm sorry. This is 10 of, uh, of those uses. And it's not used, hardly used in, uh, in uh, uh, Proverbs at all. This is the first of three times that we'll have it. This, this fool will come back in, uh, in the same chapter. In fact, he comes back in 1721. If you glance down there, you'll spot it. He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. The father of Nabal is not like in Nabal. Okay? And this is the, the socially detrimental uh, cultural fool. The, uh, the, I don't know, the village idiot? I guess, is that a, I guess that's a fair idiom. Um, all right. And then the last class is uh, Proverbs, the last reference in Proverbs is Proverbs 30 and verse 22. Verse 21 says, uh, under three things the earth quakes and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. All right. Well, there's doctrine we're going to teach in that chapter too. But those are, that's, those are the only three places that Nabal, Nabal, occurs in the book of Proverbs. Okay? And I've messed up and called this Nabal a couple of times, but if you're familiar in the life of David with Nabal and Abigail, Nabal was the fool. Nabal was, and he wasn't the fool in the lack of wisdom Proverbs sense, he was the fool in the village idiot sense, in the socially irredeemable sense, in, in uh, the detriment to his culture sense. Nothing noble about Nabal. And uh, when you read that story and you read how he uh, failed to appreciate David's blessing in his life, he failed to appreciate the, the protection that David's men had offered him all those years, when he was very insulting to the anointed of God, that shows you the community uh, detriment that Nabal was. The other uses are interesting. Um, David was upset when he heard of the death of Abner. He said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Shall Abner die as the socially reprobate? You know. Um, yeah, Second Samuel 13 um, Psalm 14, by the way, this is the guy who says in his heart, there is no God. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the Nabal, the Nabal, okay? Not the Evil, not the, not the other expressions, it's the Nabal who says in his heart that there is no God. So this is uh, when you're dealing with an atheist, when you're dealing with an atheist, you're dealing with a social cultural reprobate. You're dealing with an individual that is not going to be contributing to his neighborhood, town, state, or nation. Because he's an atheist. He's godless in his thinking. He's godless in his lifestyle. He's godless in his attitude. And you say, but, 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 he's a billionaire and he contributed and he built a hospital and... Hear me out. Contributing to his culture 
contributing to his to his um, uh, society. In the plan of God, it requires salt and light. In the plan of God, it requires the the stewardship function that we have in the body of Christ. All right, we'll have more to say on that too. Um, anyway, the much more common term is the casil that we've seen repeatedly. Proverbs 1, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 10, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 13. Like I say, we've had full studies throughout all of Proverbs and it's tended to be either the casil or the avil. Again, Proverbs 1, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 10, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 15. So we've got two different flavors of fool in, uh, in Proverbs, the casil and the avil. That one's a shorter one, 19 uses. But this little guy, that's what we're looking at today. This is what we're looking at in verse 7. It's our first time to see it in the book of Proverbs. This is the navel. All right. And so this is a sociological antithesis for the sociological noble. The sociological noble. And I guess I'll keep using that terminology um, I may, I may tweak it to get a bit between this week and next week, although maybe not. I've had three weeks now to figure this one out. I'm still struggling with uh, with how to express this, um, but it's hard. It's hard to relate uh, in in some respects. the uh, The way that we value that that a community will value certain a certain segment of their population by virtue of how they contribute to their community. And so we have, we have our nobles, we have our... Uh, and, and maybe the biggest thing is our nation was founded without an aristocracy. Our nation was founded and said we're leaving Great Britain and we're done with kings and princes and dukes and, and, and earls and barons and lords. We don't have a house of lords over the house of commons. Okay? And so there's no inherited nobility in the United States. And, uh, and so you're not born in, in, a, in a, you know, you don't become a duke because your dad was a duke, so to speak. And maybe you were born in very humble circumstances. That, that's irrelevant in America. In America, the blessings of God, the achievements, the, the, the opportunity is there. And there are so many regs to riches stories that could only happen in America, and they've happened in America again and again and again and again. That's what freedom does. So um, we will struggle <laughs> because in the, in, in, in the ancient world, in the medieval world, and for much of the modern world, every village knew who the Lord was. Every village knew who the nobility was. Every village knew who the serfs were, who the slaves were, who the peasants were. And so the stratification of culture and society was much more vivid and it's a little bit more awkward for us today because it's not as apparent uh, as it is today. But we know, I mean, there's no question in the city of Austin, for example, who uh, is contributing to the Austin Civic Opera and who is living under the bridge at, at wherever, okay? Yeah. So we have, we have stratification. It's just, it's different now in our, in our modern world. It's different now in our American culture. And, uh, and the Bible addresses this, by the way. 
The Bible addresses this and it addresses this in a straightforward manner and I'm hoping that we can, we can do so in, in this class and, and next week. Alright. The other issue is deceptive speech which is also inappropriate. Despe- deceptive speech is also inappropriate. Now, thou shalt not lie is, is a no-brainer. We get that. That's the easy way to preach this verse. Okay? And, uh, I mean, you can turn to Exodus 20 and verse 16 and, and you find it there. Don't tell lies. Okay? In fact, this one is so simple that counterfeit religions usually include it, right? Counterfeit, uh, you know, moral uh, philosophies will, will include it. And, uh, and, and because, you know, other religions say don't lie, uh, and our, our faith says don't lie, um, that leads people to say, well, we're all the same. We all worship the same God. We all have the same outlook on life. Uh, we just want to be good people and be nice to one another. Don't tell lies. And uh, isn't, isn't all religion basically the same? Okay? And that's the fallacy that they take it. So don't tell lies is, is the easy way to preach it. And it is true. Lying is a sin in most cases. Unless you're Rahab the harlot protecting the spies. Or you're Jesus. You know Jesus lied? Teaching the, uh, the rich young ruler that all he needed to do was give away all his money and he had eternal life. That was factually an inaccurate statement. It was factually untrue. But in an instructive, didactive technique, he, he proclaimed what was factually untrue to make the bigger point. Okay? And so when you use an idiom, idiomatic expression, you're not a carnal liar. Okay? If I tell you that uh, you know, class is over here in two minutes and I could eat a horse... That's factually untrue. I am physically not capable of eating a horse. But you don't think I'm carnal for saying that. Any more than Jesus was carnal. For, so when we say thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness, we, we talk about untrue statements that are in the setting of a judicial proceeding whereby you're actually defying the justice of God, you're defying the truth of God, you are living as an open representative of the father of lies instead of humbly walking before the God of truth. So when we come back to this next week, we're going to talk about truth versus lies. We're going to talk about the bigger issues of being a child of truth, serving the God of truth, walking by means of the spirit of truth. And then we'll also have some things to say about nobility. Because what makes nobility? You can think about this between this week and next. Because we want to be noble, don't we? And if, if we're going to be noble, how am I noble? Noble-minded, that's right. And, and so, you know, it's not just I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm noble because my dad is noble and we're better people than those peasants over there. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually, it's a heart attitude and it's a heart attitude of generosity. The key understanding of nobility is generosity. It's an inclined heart that is ready to give ready to give. Doesn't give grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the generous, the the cheerful giver. It's a reflection of God's own nobility, God's own generosity. And so we'll look at those next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to truth. I pray, Father, that we can have a biblical viewpoint
as it pertains, pertains to our impact in culture. Father, we're here to be salt and light. We're here to impact our neighborhoods, our city, our county, our state, our nation. And uh, Father, in so doing, we uh, are obedient to Your Word, so therefore we're serving You. We're glorifying Your Son. We're laying up treasure in heaven. We are portraying a, uh, a witness to this lost and dying world. So thank You for the blessings of learning these things and the blessings of living these things. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.